talking about what the Bible doesn't say. And someone might scratch their head and say, how in the world are you going to spend a certain amount of minutes talking about what the Bible doesn't say? Well, actually, this is an important topic, and we need to understand what we often refer to as the silence of the Scripture. When we think about what the Bible doesn't say, there's actually something to be learned from that. And so we want to discuss this. This is an element. This is one part of the broader study of Bible authority that we often engage in. And one of the things that we comment about when we talk about Bible authority is that we must honor the silence of the Scriptures. And so we're going to talk about that, just sort of be reminded and review some of those principles tonight, uh, because actually they are under challenge. And there are some, even among our own brethren, who are beginning to question whether or not we can make determinations based upon the silence of the Scripture. So we want to study about that tonight. We thank you for being here. We appreciate your presence very much. As Anthony already said to our visitors, thanks for coming. Come back whenever you can. Ask whatever questions you have. Uh, we are very glad to have you here. We look forward to these times together and hope that our time spent tonight will be a benefit to us all. Let's talk about the silence of the Scripture. Uh, when we, come, when we think about the silence of the Scripture, I want to suggest to you that there are two possible views, two basic attitudes. The first of them is, where God has not spoken, we are at liberty to act as we think best. And therefore, the conclusion would be, silence gives freedom. Silence authorizes us to do whatever we want. If the Bible doesn't address a topic, then we can do as we please. The second possibility is sort of the opposite of that. Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only do those things which are authorized. Now, obviously we're seeing two ends of the spectrum here. One is you can pretty much do as you please when the Bible is silent. The other says if the Bible is silent, you can't do, you can't act because you don't have authority. Now, I'll tell you where we end up in this question. I mean, we can sort of tell you the answer before we go into the arguments, and the answer is we believe this. We believe that when the Bible is silent, we must be silent. There was an old expression that went around uh, dating way back to, to the uh, uh, restoration movement, where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And that is the notion here, that when the Bible is silent, we can only do those things which are authorized, and if the Bible is silent, we can't act. Now, this is not a new controversy. This has been around for a long time. One of the things that I think is a little bit frustrating is that sometimes people in our day will come up with something and think that they've discovered an issue or discovered a way of thinking or a philosophy or a means of interpretation that no one ever thought of before. Well, that, that's pretty presumptuous when we consider the fact that uh, our New Testaments have been around for 2,000 years now, thereabouts. For us to imagine that we have developed a new way of thinking about the Scriptures that no one else ever thought of before is really presumptuous. This is not a new argument. It's been around for a long time. One of the early, sometimes you hear a guy like Tertullian referred to as one of the church fathers. Well, you've got to use that term, I guess, uh, uh, carefully. When that terminology is used, what they're describing is, here's a, a man who was a Christian Early on, after the apostolic age, all the apostles had died, but he was, he was not far removed from the, from the time of the apostles, an early Christian. 
he he's a well-known he was a well-known scribe and author and so a lot of his quotes a lot of his writings are left for us and we can sort of view how those not uh, i mean now we're removed from the apostles but not far removed from the apostles how were those early christians viewing a subject like this tertullian wrote some say that the thing which is not forbidden is freely permitted I should rather say that what has not been freely allowed is forbidden. And so here's an early church writer, not an inspired man, but an early writer among Christians. Uh, you see that he lived from 150 A.D. to 222 A.D. His view was the one that we were taking. That is, where the Scripture is silent, we must be silent. Many of you know the name Martin Luther, of course, who was among the leaders of the Reformation movement. There's the dates of Martin Luther's life from 1483 to 1546. Sadly, Martin Luther made a progression of thought on this question. He started out conservatively. He said, whatever is without the Word of God is, by that very fact, against God. And so, I could agree with that statement, couldn't you? It seemed like he took a rather conservative view on that, but he, he began to sort of modify that and compromise that. He said nothing ought to be set up without scriptural authority, or if it is set up, it ought to be esteemed free and not necessary. Oh, now he said, well, we can, go, we can do some stuff that's not authorized, but we can't bind it on other people to do it. If we choose to do it, it's okay, but we can't make everybody else do it. Now, that's a compromised position, right? He started out conservatively, but he got more liberal. And then he got even more liberal than that. He said, what is not against Scripture is for Scripture and Scripture for it. In other words, if, it, if the Scripture is silent, then that is our Scripture for doing it, basically. And so he got very progressive in his thinking. However, he, he was not the, the uh, unanimous opinion of the day. There was a conservative reformer named Zwingli who lived almost identically the same time as Luther. They were exact contemporaries one of another. Zwingli was known to be more conservative and he took this view. Practices not enjoined or taught in the New Testament should be unconditionally rejected. And so Zwingli would take the position that we take where the Scripture is silent, we must be silent. We point those quotes out not to prove anything, but to simply illustrate that this argumentation has been around for a long time. You know, dating way back almost to the time of the apostles, there was this question, where the Scriptures are silent, what should we do? And so we want to deal with that again tonight, not with the suggestion that we're plowing new ground, because we're not, but simply by way of reminder about this particular aspect of Bible authority. Again, to emphasize, we're going to take this view, and I think we can sustain it from the Scriptures. Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We only do those things which are authorized. Let's, uh, let's ask which is right, and then see if we can determine it from the Scriptures. Let's go to the Old Testament first for some evidence that I think will help us make the conclusion. In the Old Testament... We have the very familiar story of Noah. We all know it well. Our children study it in their Bible classes. Uh, it's an old story, but it, it packs such a punch because there's so much powerful information there, really along the lines that we're discussing tonight, the silence of the Scriptures. In Genesis 6, verse 22, very positive statement about Noah. It says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Uh, 
I, I wish that when my life is said and done, when all is over, it could be said of me, I did all that God commanded me to do, I did it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to say at your funeral? That ought to be the goal we're all striving for. But in regards to, by the way, a, a newer translation I think makes it even plainer, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Well, we're all familiar with the specification of the ark, make thee an ark of gopher wood, God told Noah. And the argument that we make that is just unanswerable is, could Noah have done his work with a different kind of wood? Now, there's some argument about what was gopher wood, and we're not even sure that we have that exact species available to us this day. Some argue that it maybe was like a cypress tree or something of that nature. Possibly. It doesn't really matter. But it was a known species of tree in the day that Noah lived. And God specified, build thee an ark of gopher wood. Since God specified that, but was silent on every other kind of wood available at the time, could Noah have used a different kind of wood? Could he have used pine or oak or cherry or walnut? And everybody can quickly answer and say, absolutely not. Noah could not substitute when God had spoken it on one and specified one and was silent on all the others. God's silence on others. He didn't say, don't use these others, but his silence on the others was proof positive that they could not be used. If Noah had substituted the wood, could we say Noah did everything just as God commanded him? The answer is obviously no. Right? So we learn from Noah about the silence of the Scripture. When God is silent, we can't act. We're not authorized to act. Moses taught plainly on this when he was reviewing the law to the children of Israel before he was to die in the book of Deuteronomy, retelling the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Again, I think that's pretty easily understood. Don't add to this. Don't take anything away from it. Just do what God commanded. So the children of Israel understood that principle and so, and it is a principle that we need to adhere to as well. There's the famous story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, where we were reading earlier. Leviticus chapter 10, beginning verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. We know the story of Nadab and Abihu, right? Maybe, again, here a newer translation makes it a little clearer. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. Strange fire, unauthorized fire. They, they got their fire from an unauthorized source, and they offered their incense with it. God didn't say not to, but He told them where they were to obtain their fire for the burning of that incense. And when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, they were struck dead. Again, uh, this is clear. Uh, the, the, they were not authorized based upon God's silence. Silence prohibited them from doing other than they, they knew from the Word of God. Very clear. Let me give you one more. I don't want to weary you with these familiar stories from the Old Testament. We know them well. We know Noah. We know Moses. We know the story of Nadab and Abihu. 
And we know that famous episode in the time of King David about carrying the Ark of the Covenant. David knew what was right about transporting the Ark because he knew what was recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant. Based on that, King David correctly deduced this. David said, None ought to carry the Ark of God but the Levites, for them hath the Lord chosen to carry the Ark. And so, there was no mention of any other tribe carrying the Ark of the Covenant. David took from that that the Levites ought to do it because God has chosen them and has been silent about anybody else carrying the ark. And he was right about that, right? That was the right conclusion. The Levites ought to be the one. Now, David, of course, had some history, his own experience with the ark. You know the famous episode of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, beginning verse 3. They set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And when they came to Nation's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark. We know that story. What was the problem? Well, they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart rather than they were supposed to put the rods through the staves, carry it on their shoulders. They weren't supposed to touch the Ark. Carrying it in the prescribed way, would never. this episode with Uzzah would have never have happened. But because they were carrying it in an unauthorized way, and Uzzah reached up to steady the Ark when it was about to fall off the ox cart, he was struck dead. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 13, David said, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order. When David was talking about what happened with Uzzah, notice another version says we didn't do it in the prescribed way. They weren't carrying the ark in the prescribed way. And David knew that, that the punishment came from God because they didn't do what God said to do in the way that he said to do it. They didn't honor the silence of the Scripture, right? And so, from all of those Old Testament examples and more that we could cite, I think that the indication is clear. How should we view this question of the silence of the Scripture? Well, in the Old Testament, there seems to be no doubt. I don't know how you could come to a different conclusion. When God is silent, we must not act. We are not authorized to act in areas where God has not spoken. But we could look to the New Testament as well, and I think we see the same conclusion in the book of 2 John, verse 9, 2 John, verse 9 says plainly, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Notice that expression, abiding not, transgressing and abiding not in the doctrine of Christ. The New American Standard Version says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The American Standard Version says, Whosoever goeth onward. Another new version says, Anyone who runs ahead. And you begin to get the idea that if it's not in the Word of God, you need to leave it alone. Compare this kind of uh, mentality to the idea that is so often expressed by people today. If it doesn't specifically forbid it, we can do it. How does that notion, how does that mentality, if the Bible doesn't specifically forbid it, we can do it, how does that compare with 
someone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ. Those don't line up, do they? And so again, I think that kind of a verse would be a positive proof that the, the silence of the Scripture cannot be authoritative. We must not act where God has not spoken. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. You know this verse as well. 1 Peter 4, 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Um, well, if the Bible was silent on a matter, then you couldn't do that. Could You couldn't be speaking as the oracles of God if the Bible was in fact silent on the subject that you're addressing. You couldn't be honoring this instruction if you proceed to speak and to act in ways that are not spoken about in the Bibles. You couldn't be speaking as the oracles of God. Think about a couple of applications of that principle. The principle is we ought to speak as the oracles of God. And therefore, obviously, we have to be silent where the Bible is silent. With that principle in mind, let me ask you about the Lord's Supper. This is, this is some practical applications of the principle of the concept. What about the Lord's Supper? When our men come up here on the Lord's Day to lead us in the Lord's Supper, one of the passages that they very frequently read, it's because it is so appropriate, is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 beginning. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Could we, just if we had the, the desire, could we substitute the elements of the Lord's Supper? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is a contemporary age and we really need to conform to the times and we sort of, we need to sort of adapt ourselves to people's present day sensibilities. And so I'm going to suggest that instead of the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread, I'm going to suggest, what could be, what could be more contemporary than Coke and pizza? Wouldn't that be, you know, wouldn't that really, don't you think that that would really be stimulating to people's sensibilities in the modern age? We'll have Coca-Cola and pizza for the Lord's Supper. What would you think about that? Well, I, I hope you'd run me out of here on a rail if I seriously suggested something like that. Why? Why not? It doesn't say not to. The Scripture doesn't say we can't. And nowhere does it say thou shalt not. But it does tell us what we're supposed to do, right? The unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. We know are the prescribed elements. God's silent on anything else. And so if we're going to honor the silence of the Scriptures, we're going to use those. Well, that's easy, isn't it? Doesn't that seem easy? Well, what about the day on which we take up a collection? 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1-2, you know this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Well, that specifies the first day of the week for the taking up of the collection, right? But what about other days? Uh, we always meet on Wednesday. Every week we meet on Wednesday. Could we take up a collection on Wednesday? Many of our denominational friends do. They don't pass up a chance. If people are assembled, they'll pass the hat, so to speak. Could we on Wednesday? Or if we're having a gospel meeting, could we do it every night of a gospel meeting? 
Someone said, oh no, we couldn't do that. Why not? Well, because of this principle, the silence of the Scripture. God specified what he wanted, authorized what he required, and it was silent on taking up a collection on any other day of the week. Therefore, we don't, because we don't have authority. The silence, God didn't say, don't do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so forth. But the silence, and therefore the silence does not authorize us. We are prohibited. Let's get a little harder. What about music and worship? You know Ephesians 5.19. I hope you know Ephesians 5, verse 19, one of our memory verses, right? Speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here, the Lord specifies vocal music, singing. And the New Testament is absolutely silent on Christians using instruments of music in worship to God. And so the silence there has to be honored. We, although there's nothing in the New Testament about instruments, we understand that that silence does not provide us the authority to move forward and add instruments. It limits us. We must be silent where the Bible is silent. Now, we just mentioned three things on this idea from 1 Peter 4, verse 11. Speak as the oracles of God. I want you to know that those three simple things that we all have understood for a long time are under challenge, and they're under challenge by some of our own brethren these days in churches of Christ. The question of music, there are people who are challenging that. And already, even right here in this city, there are some who call themselves churches of Christ who are beginning to use instruments in, in at least some parts of their worship. The day on which we take up the collection... There are those who are saying we're too restrictive in that matter and that doesn't, and, and, and it's not essential and that we could take up collections on the day. There are even some, and it's hard to, it's hard to even fathom, but there are some who begin to challenge whether or not that those elements of the Lord's Supper are the only ones that we can use. I want to tell you, when we move away from this respect for the silence of the scripture, there's no stopping place. Now, now you might like to, to authorize one little thing and stop there. But I tell you, once we cross that threshold, there is no legitimate stopping place. If we can do one thing that the Scriptures are silent about, we can do other things, and there will be no end of the departure from the truth if we allow that to begin. We have got to honor the silence of the Scriptures. I think maybe the best argument in the New Testament for the silence of the Scriptures is from the Hebrew writer. In Hebrews 7 and 8, you know this argument. In Hebrews chapter 7, beginning verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken, talking about Jesus, for Jesus of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Get the idea of the argumentation here in Hebrews chapter 7. The Hebrew writer is saying, if there's a change in priesthood, there's going to have to be a change in law because Jesus couldn't have been a priest under the old law system. Under the old law system, all the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi, right? Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. The Hebrew writer is right when he says it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. But notice what he said here. He says, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Moses didn't speak anything about priesthood from Judah. He didn't say you can. He didn't say you can't. 
He was just silent. Moses was silent on priests coming from any tribe other than Levi. He said the priest must come from Levi. And so the Hebrew writer is correct when he says in chapter 8, verse 4, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Why? Wrong tribe, right? He couldn't be a, he couldn't be a priest under the law of Moses. He didn't come from the right tribe. But notice this expression. Now this is the one I think is so key. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He was silent on whether someone could come from the tribe of Judah or Simeon or Benjamin. He was silent on any other tribe. He didn't say anything about it. He, said, he didn't say thou shalt not. He didn't say you can or can't. He just didn't talk about it. Moses, when he gave the law, made it clear, priests come from the tribe of Levi. And the Hebrew writer is right when he says, therefore, Jesus could not be a priest under that system. And so, I think it's clear. And I think we can draw the right conclusion. And based both upon Old Testament, historic Old Testament events, but more particularly upon New Testament passages, if we were to ask the question, which of these views is right? The liberal view, which says, where God has not spoken, we're at liberty to act as we think best. Silence gives us freedom to act. Is that right, or is this conservative view which says, where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only do those things which are authorized. I hope you agree with me that the proof is powerful in conclusion that that second view, that conservative view, is the right one. And we need to be committed to it. Again, I don't think this is just an academic exercise, not just some interesting theological bantering. This really has serious implications as to what we do and how we do it. And it's under attack. It has been for a long time. As we said earlier, these are not new questions in our age. They've been around for a long, long time. But what is particularly concerning is that some of our own brethren now are beginning to compromise on this important principle of Bible authority. And I hope that we understand it and that we are committed to honoring it as we seek to do God's will. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to end our lesson tonight with a song of invitation, as we always do. This, this lesson, of course, hasn't taught the plan of salvation, or for that matter, uh, provided motivation for someone to obey the gospel plan of salvation. But it may be that someone here has that desire tonight. We wouldn't want to end without giving you the opportunity to do that. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's the plan of salvation. If you're ready to obey, we're ready to assist you. We're glad to study with you if you need more study. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to your Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.